Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And we're here with our special guest, Dylan Jones. Hello. <laughs> Editor of GQ. Welcome. It's really lovely to have you here. We're mainly going to be talking about your new book. We'll talk about some other stuff as well. Great. But your new book is called... It's I seem to be cursed almost every other week with um, a very, very long like title come subtitle, which I have to... The Wichita Line Man is the title, and the, and the subtitle is Searching in the Sun for the World's Greatest Unfinished Song. And obviously that song is named in the title. It's Wichita Line Man by Glenn Campbell, written by Jimmy Webb. I am a lineman for the county and I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another overload This is, I mean, we're used to books about albums. <laughs> we're used to books about you know, bands, artists. There aren't many books about one song. I think there's a book about Strange Fruit. So... Tell us what inspired you to write an entire book about, and of course, around one legendary song. Well, a couple of years ago, I read a book on David Bowie, which uncharacteristically was very successful for me, which doesn't happen very often. Uh, (laughs) My agent, my old agent, Ed Victor, sadly passed on. He said, what are you going to do next? And I said, I want to write a book about Wish It On Lime. He said, Dylan, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> and, and that's how he spoke. Uh, and then Ed sadly, sadly passed away. And I joined up with Johnny Geller at Curtis Brown. And he said, so what are you going to, you know, what's your next book? And I said, I want to write a book about Wish It On Lime. And he said, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> so you're getting real sort of affirmation. But it's the book I wanted to write. You know, there are other books that I, I've, I'm, I'm interested in pursuing. But this is a labour of love. It's a song I've loved pretty much for its entire life history, for 50 years. But I didn't want to write a book that was just one of those books which is sort of my favourite records, me, 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 me. Yeah. I wanted to write it in a very objective way, even though it goes off in lots of different tangents. And I thought there was enough there. In fact, weirdly, when I, I spent a year writing it, and when I eventually met Jimmy Webb, formally to interview him for the book, which was in Oyster Bay in Long Island, Mm -hmm. where he just performed. And we met the following day in his local beachfront diner. Thoroughly charming person. Mm -hmm. God, he was... And very generous in his time and anecdotes. And he said said exactly the same thing that my wife did when I told her what I was doing. She said, so you're writing a book about Wichita Lineman? Why? (laughs) (laughs) So there's like, I've got a tsunami of people not <laughs> wanting me to write this book. But it's a song that's very dear to my heart. And in the late 60s, the house that I grew up in and various Air Force bases around the country and around the world, the music that my parents consumed was Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra and Glenn Campbell and Esther and Abby Oferim, The Seekers... And all of that stuff. And I know that you're meant to rebel against your parents' tastes. And I did, obviously, like everybody did. But I genuinely loved those records. In fact, in the 90s, when the sort of lounge thing happened and everybody pretended to like easy listening because everything else had been revived, I actually had those records. Mm. I really liked those records. Mm. And also, I'm not a great believer in guilty pleasures. I think Mm. it's a kind of farcical thing. I think if you like something, you like something. I mean, obviously, there's... 
you go through periods where, where, where things are not particularly fashionable, but I've never been a big believer in that. In fact, even... I'm sorry, you've got to interrupt me, because I, I, no, 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 I, I, no, I can talk no, for hours. No, well, I'm with you on this. You know, pr- proudly unfashionable. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I remember vividly those, particularly Glenn Campbell records, um, Galveston, Richard Lyman, at the time, and I didn't like Glenn Campbell. I didn't like what he represented, what he sounded like. You're a mean person. But, I don't like you. But... but <laughs> I did love those songs. Yeah. And there was something really compelling and interesting about them. This, this isn't just run-of-the-mill Los Angeles M.O.R. There is something really interesting going on in these songs. And I didn't know what it was. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about when I'm, what, 12 years old mm. or whatever it was, you know. But I vividly remember them in a way that so much stuff, the Estenabia forums just went past yeah, sure. me, you know. And so I do sort of understand why you wanted to write this book about that song mm. it is an extraordinary song mm. it's an extraordinary song because he's an extraordinary songwriter yeah and actually you've got someone who was genuinely trying to write songs in a different way in a different idiom mm. in, a, in in a, using a different framework than yeah. had been before but he was a quite a traditional songwriter in some respects but he was working in a world that mm. perhaps didn't respect traditional songwriting as, mm. as, as, as much as it had been sort of 10 or 15 years earlier. I mean, we'll t- talk more about that in some respects when we talk about the audio, but he does say in, in the audio interview that he wasn't allowed to dance. He's brought up strict Baptist. His father was a Baptist minister and his mother was extremely puritanical. And he said that the consequence of this is he never learnt to rock and roll and he never still right up to the present day, doesn't feel comfortable writing songs with, like, a big backbeat. Yeah. And it's all about chords and it's about structure. Yeah. Mm. Well, he was, in some respects, he was a straight. Yes. And there's a, a narrative in, in the book where he becomes embroiled in the L.A. music scene in the late 60s, mm-hmm. as you know, where he is, he's the balloon guy. You know, he wrote Up, Up and Away, yeah, yeah. and he's the balloon guy, and it's very <laughs> patronising. And the world that he works in is sort of reductive and silly and showbiz, etc., etc., but out of that came an ability to write these great songs. And then when he met Campbell, who weirdly he had been obsessed with from a young age, you have someone who is completely unlike Jimmy Webb because he's a Republican. He's a guy. He's a mm. guy's guy. Um, but he's also an extraordinary session musician. He's yeah. the Jimmy Page of his time. Yes. Incredibly gifted. Yeah. So you have this fantastic mix of complex traditional songwriting mm-hmm. quite a generic pop star with a with a great voice and the best session musicians of the yes. time and out of this that kind of strange mix comes this amazing record yeah mm. yeah i remember being at the cafe royale with you in 1994 we, yeah yeah and you reviewed it for mojo That's and right, i have yeah. just started working for mojo and i immediately felt well, this is a kindred spirit you know this guy gets Jimmy. And it's not like I really knew that much about Jimmy Webb, but I think it was that uh, just before then that Warner stuck out that compilation just called Archive. Yeah. And I hadn't, I don't think I'd ever owned any Jimmy Webb solo albums. And so this was a, just a brilliant selection of some of Jimmy's best mm-hmm. like album songs. And I just, I didn't think there was a, a weak moment on it. I just, it was my like album of the year. I just became obsessed with pretty much every song on that record. And so I know we have talked about Jimmy before and 
I've interviewed him a couple of times and found exactly the same thing. He's he's just so engaging, delightful, mm-hmm. super smart and super funny. Yeah. And I absolutely love Jimmy Webb as the sort of anomaly that he is. By the way, I should I know I was asked to point out we have a fan on here because it is like the hottest day of all time here in London. <laughs> so um, <laughs> we just thought we were willing to melt, yes. Mark and I, but we, we would. the editor of GQ must not melt. <laughs> um, sort of question, I mean, the, the subtitle, Unfinished, World's Greatest Unfinished Song. In what respects is it an unfinished song? It's if you know anything or care anything about this song, it's the one story about this song. The one story is that Glenn Campbell had had a hit with By the Time I Get to Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Great song. A more elaborate song mm-hmm. and a more complex song in a way. Certainly so geographically. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> um, so that had been a big hit for Glenn Campbell. And yeah. Glenn Campbell wanted a follow-up. And he wanted Jimmy Webb to write it. So he called him. There's like a dozen versions of this song, and they, they, they sort of, none of them are, it's, it's sort of like the Venn diagram of this one, one an- anecdote. And he says, I'd lo- love a follow-up, a town song. Yeah. You know, give, me, give, me, give me a song about a town or a city. I just want that, but I want it again. Yeah. And uh, Jimmy Webb unusually sat down to write a song to order. And he spent all afternoon doing it. And he got sort of four-fifths of the way there. Mm-hmm. And he sent a mini cassette, I think, at the time, mm-hmm. over by Korea. Because Glenn Campbell and the producing team are actually in the studio waiting for this song. Wow. So he sends the song over. Nothing. Nothing. And then I think they met about three weeks later doing uh, a session for a car commercial, possibly Chevrolet, can't remember. And Jimmy Webb says, oh, so uh, you didn't like Wichita Lineman? He said, and Glenn Campbell says, what do you mean? We cut it. <laughs> it's out next week. <laughs> and Jimmy Webb had told them that it wasn't finished, that it were, he still had some work to put in. But, How but Glenn Campbell thought it was good enough to go, and of course it was. And actually, if you analyse it, yeah, there's something missing. There's a massive great hole in it. There's no middle eight. The melody is taken up by the guitar in where the third verse should be. Mm-hmm. But, but wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's why it's unfinished. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And that really is. I didn't know that, actually. I mean, I have to confess my complete ignorance about it. It's a really great story. You should read this book. <laughs> so one of the... I mean, you say... There's, there's I, I read one... too much about music every day of the week. <laughs> uh, you say there's, there's, there's one story. I mean, there's quite a lot of stories yeah. in here. And yeah. what I, I like is it's, it, it, it's numerous different ways of looking at the song and numerous things that you spin off from the song. So it's a book as much about you know, the Midwest and its relationship to the coast. Yeah. That's very interesting. And it's just the way you write about how evocative this song is. I mean, every everyone who knows this song, who loves this song, you know, like Mark described it, you're 12 years old, you know, it's it's a haunting image. And, and it is a piece of poetry. And it's yeah. a piece of sort of existential poetry. The idea of this, you know, this guy... You're just seeing hanging in the sky, essentially. You know, you're never going to know who he was. Yeah. But imagining that he could be up there and thinking about this woman he loves and and can't have or has lost. Or I mean, it's it's it, it was unusual for the time. Yeah. And it's still kind of unusual because it, it it's some. I mean, I think he used the word minimalist somewhere. Or I think Jimmy himself uses that word. It is a piece of minimalism. It's only thirteen yeah. lines, isn't it? It's quite. It's quite. For, for such a big song, it's quite small. In fact, I remember yes. when, uh, because I, this had been in my record collection for, for, for 
and for so long it would move in boxes from place to place to place to place. And it did gather kind of, uh, not momentum is the wrong word, but the, the older it became and the more inquisitive and curious I became, you started analysing the lyrics and things. Because when I first heard it, it was just a sort of, it was a, a very melancholy song, yeah. the kind of song that you would like to listen to if you wanted to mm. feel sad. But weirdly, it, for me, it's a kind of punk song. Because when I also, moved... Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bear with me. Yeah. Hear me out here. here. Or at least it reminds me of that time because I moved to London in the summer of 1977. Obsessed with the Ramones. I looked like a member of the Ramones. Stayed at the Ralph West Halls of Residence. Yes. Where um, lots of mutual friends stayed at the time that serviced all the art schools in London and Chelsea. And I would spend most of my evenings going to gigs, going to punk gigs. And living in Chelsea at that time, it was fantastic. And you go to the Red Cow and the Man Rocks, and the Moon, Rocks, like, yeah. all of these places, yeah, yeah. Open Anchor. Just had a fantastic time. But I would go back to my um, halls of residence, and I would play Asia, and I would play Hissing the Summer Lawns, yeah. and I would play all those records that you suddenly weren't allowed to like. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I was still—I was 17 years old. I'm, I'm still learning about music and liking music and growing and growing, and growing. Mm. And I would play Wichita Line Man. Yeah. And perhaps I wouldn't play it in front of a lot of other people <laughs> because you are kind of self-conscious yes. at that age. Yes. But so it has incredible resonance for that particular mm. period. But even then, at that time, at 17, I hadn't kind of worked out or hadn't put the hours in to, to work out what he was singing about. And actually, until I probably reached my 30s, I don't think I'd actually analyse what the song are was you really a, about. Are you a lyrics person generally? Because, I mean, I'm uh, not. I, for me, music is almost entirely about sound. Oh, really? That's interesting. It is so, so, I mean, in the sense that, that, let's say, the way you were first approaching it is kind of like the way I approach right. everything. I hear snatches of yeah. words. I don't know. I think sometimes lyrics are very important and other times they are not incidental. But mm-hmm. there are lots of my favourite records where I sort of still haven't bothered to find out what they're singing. Sure. And, and what I sing along to is my version of yes. what it is. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes you're kind of disappointed <laughs> when you read the lyrics. <laughs> I mean, what, who produced which the line? The, the, uh, Al Delory, no, yeah. Um, nominally, yeah. It, yeah. The yeah. one thing about it, I mean, it really sounds beautiful. Yeah. And it, the sentiment of the song is carried in the music. Yeah. In a, very directly. You, you, the, when you do finally sit down and read the lyrics... It takes the you into a place. The whole, the whole it's, place it's a, complete. It's a perfect song. There's yeah. no in- incongruity about it yeah. at no. all. No. I mean, I, when I first, I bought the single in some kind of reissued picture sleeve, yeah. which I've still got some. I think it also had Phoenix on it and Galveston on it. So it was like Jimmy's little trilogy there yeah. in an EP form. And I didn't really even know what a lineman was. I didn't, but yeah. in a way, I didn't need to yes. know because the the music and the voice conveyed something. Yeah. Without yeah. you having to even dissect. It the is lyrics. a brilliant production. I mean, it's so understated, and but it's just every, all the right components of where they, where they should be. Well, I think because it's quite, as we discussed earlier, yeah. it's quite a minimalist song. It's quite a small song. That those lush orchestrations and the descending guitar at the beginning. And a lot of the tricks and all the stuff was dumped on this record yeah. were done in order to make it a much bigger record. Mm-hmm. Because he is also the man, obviously, who wrote MacArthur Park, which is one of the most sort of <laughs> maximalist, grandiose <laughs> records of the time. Yes. And quite different to this song, yeah, in a way. And again, a song I remember vividly from, 
from the time yeah. when it came out because it was such a startling, mad record. Yeah. Um, and a more famous record and a bigger hit. And because it had been sung by an actor, yeah. it had a different kind of attention point. MacArthur's Park is melting in the dark All the sweet green icing flowing down Someone left the cake out in the rain I don't think that I can take it Cause it took so long to bake it And I'll never have that recipe again Oh no I kind of like the way that Well it's sad but I mean you know We lost Glenn Campbell quite recently After a stretch of Alzheimer's Alzheimer's, And in that process He was still doing his last tours and amazingly able to sing the songs, but not really be able to function between songs and after and before the shows. But there was a, a major revival of interest in him, around, partly possibly because of the Alzheimer's and everything. That... Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of suspicious of, of that. I mean, and that's probably an unfair thing to say, mm-hmm. but I think we are certainly living in a culture where, because the narrative arc of this great period of, of popular music yeah. is coming to an end. Yeah that we celebrate people just because they're still alive and haven't died yet. And in, and in uh, I use as an example, and I'm sure, mm. I'm sure lots of your constituency will disagree with me. Mm-hmm. I felt that same way about Leonard Cohen. It's like, because uh, I never liked Leonard Cohen. I never got yeah. it. I always thought he was a sort of substandard I, talent. I, I mean, but because he was still around and he had this sort of renaissance, it was okay to think that he was some kind of creative genius. Well, I, I'm, 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 you know, Barney's having, seething. Ha, ha, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, no, I'm having that. I'm not, actually. I, I, I actually agree with you. And I find the amount, let's say in social media, the amount of sentimentality yeah. when someone dies at a ripe old age exactly. is... is Frankly, nauseating. I mean, Rutger Hauer died yesterday. I'm selling my Facebook feed. It's full of people going, yeah. R.I.P. Rutger Hauer. I mean, I'm sorry. Well, they've got nothing you know. better to do, have they, really? I like that. <laughs> yes, but, it, no, but it, is, it does point to this sort of the sentimentality yeah. that you're, you're, you're If you're you look at Private Eye this week, they have all this stuff about Christopher Booker, who died recently. Mm. And, uh, of course, he came up with the legendary 94 Club. You know, <laughs> those people had the audacity to get to the age of 94, <laughs> yeah, yeah. not 27, 94. 94. <laughs> One of the great pleasures of seeing Jimmy live, which I've done on a number of occasions over the last, I don't know, 20 plus years, is the stories he tells about, you know, Glenn, about Richard Harris, yeah. Jimmy Webb, Jimmy Webb. Yeah. All of, you'll have seen them. And uh, what Jimmy lacks in the upper vocal registers right because he just can't hit those notes anymore he more than makes up for in his his anecdotes and what a a great raconteur he is he's a fantastic raconteur and i'm not sure if because like you i I think he's probably developed that's that side of him to create this Mm. kind of supper club atmosphere and i remember the the cafe royal gig that, that, that we both went went to he'd already developed it by that stage in fact i remember i think it was our, my second date with my wife and she thought really are we gonna have to do a lot of this <laughs> <laughs> does she really like, did she grow to like jimmy she Webb? can take or leave jimmy. glenn campbell jimmy Funny, Webb. Is it, i yeah. was lucky to my second wife who i married nine years ago i intru- sort of introduced to jimmy Webb, but she knew he was yeah i knew some of his songs i played as some of his records own records and she just absolutely fell in love with him cool fell in love with him and so it's one thing that we can i can't listen to todd rundgren with my wife but i can listen to jimmy webb and that she hates steely dan 
My Your wife, wife hates Steve Strauss for divorce. It's the weirdest <laughs> thing. Sorry. She doesn't express much opinion about music. It's like, yeah, okay. Do you want me to have a word? She, please. She actively hates. And, and I, I used to make these mixtapes for, the, for the car. And if I, I try and slip one in, she said, no, out. <laughs> it's them. <laughs> it's them, isn't it? It's true. Oh, brilliant. That's so funny. Shall we talk about the audio now, then go back to Dylan? Yeah, that's because, a great Because idea. we are talking about Jimmy Webb, and so... I agree. Rather than In, kind of, like, reversing... Unavoidably, we are talking you know, about Jimmy. Because... I, 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 I'm, the reason why I sort of raise that now is because you're talking about him as a raconteur. I really loved listening to this when I was digitising it and editing it yesterday. Up to a point, and there was a certain point when he was so funny, he's so amusing, he's so engaging, that it feels slightly scripted. I think that's fine. You, you, you know, there's, there's, yeah, but I don't mind that. I saw um, sure. I, I saw Springsteen on stage last year mm. doing the Springsteen on Broadway thing. Yeah. And in my naivety, probably because I hadn't paid enough attention, I just thought he came out and played his banjo every night and, and told stories. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't. It's, it absolutely, every anecdote, mm. every aside, every sort of ad hoc thing yeah. was scripted. But it didn't make it any no. less of a great show. No, it was no, entertainment. No, no. It was but, amazing. But, but this is him talking to one person in a room. Yeah. yeah and I think that's what... Okay, yeah, fair enough. But, but having said that, he's, he's extraordinary. He's extraordinarily smart. I mean, we'll listen to a clip now. And one of the things, and again, this relates to what we were talking about earlier, is that he sees himself out of the tradition of songwriting, which is about chords, which is about real oddities that you can build in. People like Burt Bacharach did, who he yeah. worshipped. Yeah. Uh, he calls it the diatonicism. Mm. And it's sort of about the extra notes you add to chords to make it strange and that bit different. He talks about Linda Ronstadt at another point in the interview, how she likes him to, what does he call it, rub. Where the, the rub of the, his songs. The rub right. of the Because she had just produced that album, Suspending Disbelief. Yeah. She was yeah. his producer, which was great. Yeah. A great marriage. Uh, shall we listen to this, this clip, mm. him talking about the complexities and about how those complexities are no longer present in modern music? It was not always so, because the Beatles' music was rich with dissonance and, and, and beautifully organized progressions. Joni Mitchell's music was absolutely a, a garden of dissonance and rub, what Linda Ronstadt's called it, the rub. She said, I love it when you rub me, because, because, of, some of, because of the kind of chords that I do write. But I think it's it's a currency that's devalued now, and it's and it's just you know one another in a long list of bitches, and we can take the whole afternoon, and we can do we can do Jimmy's top 100 bitches. But that one that one's like pretty near the top is that nobody pays any attention to chords; they don't even know what they are, and when they hear them, they don't understand what they're hearing. I think it's very interesting the, the, his bemoaning kind of modern world in some respects, but he's absolutely right. I mean, I think of a R&B artist that I kind of like, present-day R&B artist I quite like, D'Angelo, and there are no middle eights in his songs. You know, 
all people want to do is like come up with the two or three chords that they think is necessary. And as an as a kind of retired songwriter myself, for me it was all about chords. And, and this really resonated with me the way he talked about constructing songs with yeah. piling chords on top of one another to sort of take you in a sort of musical narrative through. Yeah. I mean, songwriting is so different these days because it's it is it's an, they're, they're, they're algorithms now. Yeah, everything has to be the the immediacy mm. is important, mm-hmm. and every sort of part of the song is in a granular fashion, sort of farmed out to someone to do a hook and this that, and the other. The great thing about Jimmy Webb is that he was writing songs in a way ambitious songs in the same way that Bacharach was. Yes, and they would deliberately pile all this stuff into yep. like, well, you think I'm going to go there? I'm going to go down. Yeah, I'm yeah. Go to a minor yeah. key, and I'm going to go here. Yeah. it's ludicrously still called easy listening. Where yes, they're, 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 they're yeah. some of the most gut wrenching, yeah. traumatic, complex. Dark yeah. songs. I mean, we found ourselves getting nostalgic about Britney Spears' Hit Me Baby One More Time the other day. And that's, like, for us old folks, is like yesterday. But yeah. actually, it's, now it sounds like proper songwriting yeah. compared to what... Sort and of it's got a humanity. Is, yeah. yeah. A lot of music today doesn't see, but maybe one always feels that. Yeah. I think humanity is under attack by technology. I think humanity will prevail in one form or fashion. Yeah. But Jimmy right. talks a lot about that. It's a real yes. sort of creed of yeah, yeah. And of course, he'd written a whole book about songwriting. Yeah, so a, great, is, a great book. Yeah. I, mean, in interview, I mean, he talks about the importance of Pet Sounds as a record. Yeah. That for people like him, Pet Sounds is a real game changer in how you construct music, how you use the studio and so on and so forth. He's got some great stories about like playing Monterey Festival with Johnny Rivers. He talks at some length about the catastrophe of his mother's death and his background, and his background, the way his background directly influenced who he became as a songwriter. We'll play a clip at the end of the podcast, which where he talks about his luck, about how he says this thing about, you know, everyone, maybe they pass this mansion and they get invited in to see one room. He got to see the whole mansion. Well, luck is very important. I think Mm. luck is something which not enough successful people acknowledge. But in his case, I think that, like most things, you can become better at them by practice. Yes. I certainly think he did that as a musician. Mm. But I think that a gift like this is he did have an... There was something innate that he had. He had an innate gift. He had the ability to write songs. But he also had the ambition Mm -hmm. to further his art, to make better songs. Yes, yeah. And not just write songs for particular reasons, which is why Wichita Lyman is strange, because it is a song written to order, yeah. mm. which is uh, kind of uh, unusual. I mean, the one thing that, that, that I think songwriters who are pure songwriters, I know that Jimmy Webb has his own career and all that, but yeah. you know, primarily we think of him as someone who wrote great songs yeah. for other people, is that because they aren't writing for themselves, they can continue to explore without that being a clash between their public presence yeah. and the music they're making, which gives them shelf life. Someone like Burt Bacharach can keep writing for years very, very successfully and effectively. If you're in a band or you're the artist and you're a songwriter, the two things define one another and it becomes a trap, which is why I've got this thing called the four-album, four-year theory, is that even the best artists really only have maximum four great albums in them, four good years, because of that box they, they find themselves in, and therefore they either they end up repeating themselves to no great effect, or they end up sort of breaking the whole thing completely. Mm-hmm. Mm. Are you not simply saying that they are lesser 
beings than the people who have careers of 10, 20, 30 no, years? No, no, I, I, I'm <coughs> what I'm saying is that, that, that if you're just a pure songwriter, yeah. that you can keep reinventing yourself in various ways. If you're the artist, you become defined by your public persona uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And the, the two things clash. The rather sweet thing about talking to Jimmy Webb is that you kind of do forget, uh, you, you occasionally forget, I have forgotten that, it's for him. It's a job. It's a business, mm. and it's like, oh yeah, Streisand didn't like that one. Or mm. I tried to whack that to yeah, yeah. to Tom Jones, and it yeah. didn't work. And it's 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 commerce. You know, yeah. it's tr- it's it's a transactional mm. business. Yeah. We had an audio interview with Hal David recently. We talked about it on the podcast, wow. and uh, you know, totally out of the same tradition, really. Yeah. You know, uh, and he's very interesting in exactly that. You know, that you chuck these songs at people, and some of them come back. Some of them are hits. You know, some just disappear. And it's, yeah. it, 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 it's, it's he a, talks quite a lot in the audio about the influences of primarily Burt Blackrock yeah. and Brian Wilson. Those are the two mm-hmm. real gods who, who changed the landscape. For quite him. right, too. And I think you mentioned earlier that the whole bit of Mr. Balloons. Actually, it's a, a quote, I think, from one of my interviews, because I remember him telling me he was... He had Joni in. Joni Mitchell was a, was a big fan of his, a big supporter, yeah. and she... I think she sings on Feet in the Sunshine. Mm-hmm. And she was in the studio recording. And Jimmy comes in, and there's this languorous voice that comes from under the mixing desk. And it's like, it's Mr. Balloon. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Eric Anderson yeah. dissing yeah. Jimmy. Yeah. Because of his associations with people like Glenn yeah. Campbell and Las Vegas yeah. and all of that. And I, but I actually think all this time, I think Jimmy probably had the more interesting life Good God, yeah. Than yeah. Eric Anders. He, yeah. very, he, he talks glowingly of Joni Mitchell as precisely yes. the person who can use chords, who can write these strange And she wasn't a things. snob. She wasn't she, snobbish. No. She recognised yeah. that Webb was a, was a musical yeah. genius. Yeah. But also, he had, I mean, he had terrible insecurity during that period because he was phenomenally successful quite quickly. In his early 20s, as a multimillionaire because he had half a dozen massive global mm-hmm. hits. And I think he found the environment of LA in the late sixties and early seventies quite oppressive because he was, he was, you know, he was more associated with the man mm. or Vegas yes. than he was the counterculture. Even though he had Jimi Hendrix sleeping on his sofa, exactly, because he was a party boy. Yeah, yeah, his massive, mansion massive was, was party <laughs> central. <laughs> yeah. And the story that he wrote this song, "Wish It's a Lion Man," had a piano that's been painted green yeah uh it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful sort of contradiction in a way you mentioned like he talks about playing montre with johnny yeah, rivers yeah, yeah. he's a pretty middle of the road yeah, guy yeah, yeah. that sums up jimmy yeah. at that point he's playing montre with all the freaks but he's playing with johnny yeah. rivers yeah. Yeah. Playing with the wrong person. Yeah, exactly. i'm reading that creepy crawling the manson book yeah which very much talks about the, you know, the L.A. music industry. Is and that a ha- good book, by the way? It's very, mm, very it's, it's very it's a real, good. a real demystification yeah. of the Manson uh, story. And, 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 and it talks about the sort of the intersection between the real long hairs, the real hippies, and therefore the Manson family. Yeah. And the likes of Dennis Wilson and Terry Melcher and all that sort yeah. of stuff, who are absolutely slick, uptown Los Angeles music men, you yeah. know. So, yes, I'd imagine Jimmy Webb, yeah, you know, he must he, be very aware of that himself. Sure, but. he fits into that. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Melcher being Doris Day's son. You yes, know, why is he hanging out with these German-fested, gonorrhea-ridden the hippies? Wi- the wizard. <laughs> we got, we, we <laughs> the got wizard. This, we got this marvelous interview on Rock's Back Pages. I forget who. Maybe Peter Jones. I mean, with Dennis Wilson in '68, and he talks. 
this is with the guy I call him the wizard mm. and he's, <laughs> he's this is great this is like probably, I mean, maybe even early 69 wow he, okay so it's just a few months before yeah, yeah, it yeah. happens yeah, um, yeah. Dylan, what, let's briefly just just talk about your you. career you you sir you 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 <laughs> so not only have you you're celebrating 20 years as the editor of GQ the, the men's fashion style and all other ways bible so congratulations on 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 Thank being at the much. helm of, of that magazine for so long you actually came into journalism i think after moving to london you you studied at the chelsea school of art and, and st martin's, and, st. martin's. Yeah. and but then the next thing that i really sort of know biographically is that you started writing for id but yeah i was uh, whenever we have we have a lot of work placement people and a lot of interns at the office at, at Condé Nast, yeah. we try and get as many people through as possible because we think it's a good opportunity for them. And um, I always say, when they come in for a bit of advice, I say, well, the two things you need to learn. One is that you need to learn to work harder than you could have ever imagined working before. Just like get involved, work hard. Mm-hmm. If you work hard, you will become a, an important component of wherever you are. And the second thing is, I say, you need to be lucky. <laughs> yeah. And we can teach you the first. Yeah, because Jimmy Webb that, told you that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was lucky. I, was, I wanted to be a photographer. I studied photography. I was a pretty mediocre photographer. I had no real ambition to do it. And I was, I was a layabout, basically. I spent all my life in nightclubs. And so for 18 months after I left St. Martin's, I, I, mean, I was a film extra. I, I, I shoot down Roger Moore's plane in Octopussy. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, I was. Um, well, that's a claim. That's I was in The Hunger. I was. I, I was in a, the uh, the the heaven. The the Bella Lugosi's a dead scene that was shot at heaven in wow. a, a very I bad. Any of this about you? Dylan. I'm looking at you in uh, an entirely new light. I was a cocktail barman at the fridge. I mean, I did lots of stupid, mm. stupid things. And then a photographer friend of mine called Mark Bailey, no relation to David Bailey. He was taking some pictures for ID magazine and he wanted someone, he needed someone to go and interview them. And at that time in the culture, the, 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 the sophistication of the, of, the, of the questions would have been, where's your jacket from and how much you hate Margaret Thatcher? <laughs> you know? um, and I Didn't diligently hate. sort of <laughs> interview these 20 people and typed it up on an old red Remington that my father yeah. had given me, sent it off and then just literally forgot about it. And then by circuitous means, Terry Jones, who started ID, was the editor of ID, mm. owned ID and became a very, very good, and still is a very close friend of mine, li- literally offered me a job. Fantastic. Literally. Yeah. Well, as deputy editor? Yeah. Like, Straight in. Boom. Not bad. Uh, Fast track. Well, yeah, but it was crazy because I had no, I mean, I found out recently I, I'm dyslexic. I had no aptitude for this. I literally grew up in public and if you look at you know some of those magazines you've got lying around i mean <laughs> oh my word but um it was a fantastic opportunity and as yeah. soon as i got into that world i realized i sort of didn't ever want to do anything else and i by yeah. and large haven't yes um so i felt very lucky and very privileged i think i first intersected with you when you were the editor of arena which was kind of like the face for mexico yeah Bridge between yeah. ID and I suppose GQ in some yeah. senses. I think I you interviewed Donald Fagan. I did. Well, one, one, another of our shared passions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, don't tell your wife. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> you, did. You, you, you sent me to New York to interview Donald. That was the first time that I that I met That's him, right. and yeah. that was that was that was fascinating. We, given what's just happened um, in our country, I have to ask you. Uh, at some point, as the editor of GQ, you 
you hired our new Prime Minister as your car correspondent. I did. For many um, years. <laughs> <laughs> I remember how it happened. We, I took him to lunch, in, in fact, exactly 20 years ago after I got the job, and I was hiring lots of writers, and I, I'd read something Boris had written in The Telegraph, obviously. I think he'd reviewed a, a Mercedes, and it was just very, very funny. And I took him for lunch at the Caprice, and I, and I, I offered him this job. And he looked at me really sort of quizzically, like, well, well I, why? I mean, I'm a political writer, I'm a sketch writer. Because I said, well, you wrote something in the Telegraph, it was funny, I want you to write about cars. Would you like the gig? And he said, yeah, and we had... He worked for us about seven or eight years, I think, and he was a fantastically entertaining writer about cars. Not sure if he ever drove them, but um, <laughs> and I'm sure he did for legal reasons. He, 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 he did drive all them. But he was very entertaining. And in, in that particular... And, and we sent him to do various other things. I sent him to Vegas to interview Elton John at one point. He, he, he did various other bits Missed and pieces. Missed that one. Yeah. <laughs> it was a very, very, very funny piece, actually. But, yeah. Can you be drawn on the political situation in the UK as we sit here, given that you collaborated with the guy that, uh, quote-unquote, got us into this mess, David Cameron? No, I'm not blaming <laughs> we, we agreed before we started no, recording. No, I, I, I was... Um, I was very enthusiastic about the Cameron project in the way that I was very enthusiastic about the Blair project. And I, I think for the first couple of years, he was a good prime minister. I thought the coalition was a good thing. I think that the, the decision to, 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 to have a referendum was disastrous. But I don't think I'm alone in that. Mm-hmm. I think it was completely unnecessary. I think it was done in a very cavalier way. And again, I think that um, I'm, you know, I'm in the majority of, of, of people who hold that opinion. Do you talk it, to him? I haven't seen him no. for about six months. Occasionally, bump into him at things. Does I, he does he sleep at night? Well, his book's coming out soon. Yeah. And from what I gather, he's he is he remains or has convinced himself that he is that he was right in his decision making. I think he'll be proved wrong, but that's not really for me to say. But, but, but yeah, I think he's quite robust in his defence of his decision to call it. I suppose it's the only way he can live with it. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the fact is that for some time now, we've been basically governed by the divisions within the Conservative Party. Yeah. And, and uh, to some degree within the Labour Party. Well, mm. much, not much, governed much, by much, them, much, but much, no. our, our I, lives have been dominated. I, yes, think, but, we but, live, but, I think we live in a very... Um, it, it's, I, I remember my parents screaming at the television when I was about 10 years old, thinking, these bloody politicians. At the time, I just, I just think it was a very unsophisticated thing to say, but I think, actually, in the last three years... There's nothing else to say. We've all done exactly the <laughs> yes. same thing because mm. we've been let down by, by everyone. everyone. Literally. Yeah. Everyone. And how I think have you managed to write? So I'm looking at the list of your books here. Some of them, it's just on. How, how have you managed to write so many books while I don't have editing hobbies. GQ? Don't have hobbies. I don't have hobbies. I don't play golf. I tried, to, I tried to have a hobby a couple of months ago. I started trying to learn the saxophone, which I still intend to do, but, God, it's difficult. Um, <laughs> but a lot of my do- job, which I love, is administrative. I mean, even though I write a lot for the magazine and the website, uh, writing has, has become my hobby, my, my joy, my safe space. And actually, my daughter's quite badly dyslexic. And as I say, I've, be- I've, I've recently found out that I'm marginally dyslexic but i think writing i think some people do have an innate gift a great turn of phrase i think writing for me has been practice it's just Mm -hmm. been a lot of slog Mm -hmm. and it's like the thousand hour thing if you spend a thousand hours doing you're going to get quite good at it Mm -hmm. and so i always say to people that yes some people have an innate gift 
I certainly did, didn't, and I, it's it's a lot of practice, and it still is. It's a it's it's. I find it quite difficult. Sort actually. of analogous to sort of Jimmy Webb's sort of approach to writing songs. We are one and the same person. You are one and the same. Person. <laughs> well, <laughs> You've never seen us together, have you? <laughs> Thank you. But it's worth pointing out the end of the interview, or towards the end mm. of the audio interview. He he says that songwriting is like walking on a, a tightrope over an abyss. Mm. Wow. You know, it, it's it's about and trying it, to achieve perfection and so rarely yeah. achieving yeah. what and it's hard. You think, it's, yeah, it's it's hard. Really, but isn't that really marvellous to have a talent, to have proven yourself time and time again, mm-hmm. to be world renowned, to, to have a huge legacy, and still have still care passionately about what you do? Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Yes, it is. Isn't, isn't that it fantastic? Is, yeah. How, an amazing thing, and how uh, how lucky he is to to feel that way to yeah. still strive for perfection you see him live and it's a joy yeah. it's a joyous experience you write in the book so, so finally you, you mentioned a couple of times that you have sung this in a <laughs> karaoke fashion <laughs> if we got the right key can, do you want to I'm do not jo- a, I'm not joining a cappella version of the, of I the am a lineman for the county and I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another overload. Beautiful. Oh. <laughs> that, that didn't take a lot of encouragement. You, you are ready. I'm a for terrible that. show. You're just off. ready. That's beautiful. And on that happy note, yeah. I'll run down some of what's going to the Roxback Page Library, shall I? For, Absolutely. For this week. As we say, stick around and in, you know, just <laughs> jump in when if, if there's something that you've got something to say, jump in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first thing is, it's Paul Simon. It's one of those pop talkings and melody makers. So it's uncredited. Somebody just putting it up on the site anyway. From 1966, Melody Maker. The biggest thing Dylan has got going for him is his mystique. We've met on a few occasions and he's difficult to communicate with. That's a perfect encapsulation <laughs> of Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> and it still says... The lot of, ever thus. There are a lot of creative people in Greenwich Village and a lot of phonies. It's the bohemian myth. And again, there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing about this is that Paul Simon tells truths, but there's something sour about him. He's always been a bit chippy. That's yeah. why. Yeah, yeah. God knows why. Well, because he's four, <laughs> four foot ten or something. He's four foot ten, yeah. and he was partnered with one of the best singers yeah. in the world. Uh, what, what we discovered with the whole David interview was that Paul Simon had been one of his demo singers before even Simon Garfunkel. I did not know that fact. He had been That's a guy a who fact. sung demos for for, for Hal David. And in a way, Paul Simon occupies an analogous position to Jimmy Webb in that he wasn't really down with the freaks. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was he was quite square in his yeah. way. Mm. And I think, so there was a tension yeah. there. Um, it's true. Yeah, 1969, true. Keith from interviewing Robin Gibb, who had just left the Bee Gees. This is for Tops, <laughs> Top Pops magazine. Top Pops was a very short-lived music weekly in the UK. And Robin Gibb comes over as a complete tip, frankly. I mean, this is a guy who's got such a high opinion of himself with so little to justify. He says things like, it was restricting writing for the Bee Gees, but I enjoyed it until they began to judge what I was doing. I'm not going to be judged. And then he says, Dylan sings in the same way as me. He uses his heart as his instrument. Even I can't understand completely why this works, but it does. And this is a guy who has very high opinion of himself and... And very high voice, isn't it? <laughs> Do you want to try that one? <laughs> um, many we make- meaningless songs in very high voice. <laughs> <laughs>
Melody Baker, 1970, Chris Welch was quoting Eva von Zeppelin. She said, They may be world famous, but a couple of shrieking monkeys are not going to use a privileged family name without permission. That's brilliant. Uh, which, which I just love that. A couple of shrieking monkeys. This is really for, for Barney. Todd Rundgren interviewed by Roy Carr. Barney loves Todd Rundgren. Quite right, right too. Thank you, Dylan. I can take him or leave him. He's talking about when he's producing the band. Though the band appear to be very relaxed and laid back, in fact, they're very nervous people, lacking in confidence. Right? Well, I, when you mentioned that quote to me the other day, I told you this great story about Todd mixing Stage Fright, the man's third album. And Todd was a really arrogant, like young guys you might imagine a bit of a peacock in wearing these yeah. kind of you know satin jackets yeah. and, and the band well you know what the band were like they weren't wearing satin jackets so they 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 were slightly bridled by this by this arrogant guy and he's sitting there and at some point he refers to garth hudson the eccentric uh-huh. bearded keyboard player and as, as old man he says <laughs> hey old man uh, <laughs> levon the drummer just went apeshit Fantastic. What did you say? Came or reply? And the story is he did chase Todd around right. what was in fact the Woodstock funny. Playhouse, trying to beat the shit out of him. That's great. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I saw Utopia once actually. Oh, they were awful. Nineteen seventy-five. Yeah, that'd be about Seventy-six, right. something like that. Yeah. Not yeah. Nebworth? Did you see? Were you at Nebworth in seventy-six? Yeah, but I don't remember. Right, because they did play there. Yeah, there was that was uh, the Stones, Ten CC. Uh, Leonard Skinner? Yeah. I remember yeah, Leonard Skinner. Yeah, and Todd and yeah. Utopia were on that. But bus. I was so far away from the skate stage, I may as well have been in... Watching anybody. Nick Neesden or something. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> the Whalers at the Speakeasy, Danny Holloway, the enemy, in 26 May 73. Now, 73 is interesting. It was the first time the Whalers came over. Mm-hmm. They weren't Bob Marley and the Whalers, and they were the Whalers with the yeah. three singers. It was a miserable tour. It snowed, things like that, which you know they, they found difficult. And... It was a full start, because when they came back in 75 and played the Lyceum, it was the No Woman, No Cry off the live album from the Lyceum, which really blew uh-huh. everything wide open for what was by then Bob Marley with fewer whalers. And he says, of the unrecognisable ones, tunes, Stand Up For Your Rights stood out as perhaps the most exciting song they played. The chorus is infectious, and Bob Marley's pained vocal cuts through you, making this one an obvious candidate for a single. That, of course, is Get Up, Stand Up. And it's, it's great that you know, Danny Holloway spots what is, does become a signature tune for Bob Marley for the remainder of his career, mm. very much. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. And that was the year of Catch a Fire, yeah, of course, that, which, that's which, right. which I, you bought. Yeah, I'd absolutely. Were, were you a... Not much. Uh, no, not much. No. No, no, it was all right. I mean, it didn't do terribly well, Catch a Fire. I mean, it was, it was an extraordinarily expensive cover and things like that. But anyway, it's good, it's good stuff. That was a Zippo lighter. It was, it was right, a Zippo yeah. lighter. Yeah. Uh, mine fell apart. <laughs> 
Were you trying to light joints? I trying to light joints. Because the most extravagant one was always Ooh La La by, by The Faces. No, well, yes. I mean, Ogden's, <laughs> you know, no, no, me. no, Ogden's <laughs> Not Gone Flake by The Small Faces, which was shaped like a tobacco tin and opened yeah. up about six ways. That's yes. an extraordinary one. Well, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something. I'm going to say that Ooh La La is better records. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. We have not time for that, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> kind of controversy. <laughs> Moving on to the stylistics, Aaron Love being interviewed by Tony Cummings for Black Music. I'm very fond of stylistics in that they were the sweeter end of Philadelphia yeah. soul. And he's talking about Tom Bell. He says, you know, it's a shame a lot of, a lot of things are hyped as being works of genius when they're not. So it sounds phony when I say Tom is a genius, but he is, man. And I'll he second was. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like Jimmy, like, great. So like Jimmy Webb, deeply influenced by Burt Bacharach, which is unusual for that kind of yeah. soul producer. Yeah. But I mean, God, Tom Bell's production, melodies, chords. Oh, the best. They the really best. are yeah. extraordinary, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Uh, Dave McCulloch reviewing Pink Floyd's The Wall in Sounds. I personally despise The Wall as a record. It's, I mean, I'm not I, a huge Pink Floyd fan at the best of times. In the Wall, well, I am, but I don't like that record. Yeah. He says, Roger Waters takes on the mantle of God and we all bow down in front of our stereos and pay homage, thankful for some fresh manner. Uh, it's a really scathing review. Good. Yeah. Danny Baker attends a Diana Ross press conference for The Enemy in 1980. It must be one of his earlier bits of writing for The Enemy. Oh, he was writing 78. Okay. Yeah. His most famous press conference was the Jacksons, Jackson's, where he famously couldn't remember which one was which. <laughs> um, but I, anyway, I haven't, I'd like to read that. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd, I kind of enjoy anything he writes. Yeah. It, it's fascinating because, in fact, he's obviously asking these questions because it's around the time of the Diana album, which was produced by Chic. And there's famously the that they'd taken the album and remixed it without Sheik's involvement. And he asks her why. She says, I gave them two opportunities to shorten their, uh, how do you say, musical interludes on the tracks. Then I proceeded to make the record more Diana Ross and far less Sheikish. And she says, you see, the album's two discos that stood, and you know disco isn't what's happening right now. Besides, they've only been in the business, what, two years? Which, of course, it's built. <laughs> so it's, 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 this that, is great that, stuff. That, that made her career. What a, well, what a remade. album that was. Well, it was a great remade. album. Yeah. It was a great um, album. Interestingly, they, did, the they, 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 did re, they did release the Sheep mixes recently. You can get them and listen on Spotify. Are they better? They aren't that good. Not as good. I actually prefer the... the so the, she got it right, you think? She got it really? right. Really? Yeah, yeah, more dinerous and less... Yeah, but <laughs> how, how often... I mean, that's always the case, isn't it? I mean, whether it's the Bruce Springsteen... Darkness record, or whether it's the original Blood on the Tracks, the ones that, have, that get released are usually the better version. IMO. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I mean, this one has been a sort of notion in the air that this is the great, dep- we were deprived of the great right. Nile Rogers production, sort of, you know, Bernard Edwards production. Uh, and that has become a sort of shibboleth. You know, this is just one of those, it's given. Mm. Their version was better. Yeah. Mm. And then they finally put it out, and you listen to it, and it's. It's, right. it's, but isn't it, that always the way? It's like when yeah. Smile eventually came out. It's like, well, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll always be a yeah. chic record to me, uh, I'm afraid. I, I, I'm just going to mention Brian Case and Adam Sweeting writing about Absolute Beginners. I thought this Absolute Beginners, the film, some, the film was, was yeah. something very much in your sort of purview. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it was, it was shocking. I mean, on paper, it's brilliant. What a brilliant idea. All the components. 
fantastic mm. but it's one of the most callow yeah yeah, yeah. it's just awful well, it's every, everything that's wrong about yeah. the 80s you can, you can <laughs> up in that film. it's true I'm, I'm, yeah, so, right. I'm so glad I'm, I, I, however I'm, on paper it's yeah, like wow yeah. yes 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 well yes great book great director great talent it, it's the wrong book oh, uh, City of Spades is a much better book yeah. um, but Pat, uh, Patsy Kensett wouldn't have been in that <laughs> yeah that's difficult. I must point. Um, so, yeah. so Adam Sweeting reviews it fairly scathingly, and then Brian Case goes into some detail about the traumatic making of it. It was a. Well, it, that was the story. In fact, uh, I, it, there could have been a great book written about that. There is a brilliant book written about the making of the bomb fry of the vanities called The Devil's Candy by Julie Solomon. Oh, really? And it's such a brilliantly, brilliantly orchestrated book. The amount of detail in it is incredible. And even though you know the film is a critical and commercial flop, mm-hmm. you're 15 pages from the end and you're willing it to be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> great, uh, book, great book. I mean, it is extraordinary. I mean, Julian Temple was... I mean, he's a video maker, completely out of depth in terms of making a sort of large-scale film. And, and it's, it's, a very, it's a very interesting yeah. piece. Moving on to 1988... Bruce Dessau and The Guardian interviewing, among others, Will Sokolov of Sleeping Bag Records, who at that time saw themselves as a natural successor to what they thought was a floundering Def Jam. It's a very badly subbed piece by The Guardian subs and is headlined, it's about hip-hop violence in clubs, when that's only a really small component of the story. But I won't Sok- be reading that. But Will Sokolov says something <laughs> really... A variety of reasons. <laughs> he says, forget what CBS do. Market research is seeing a thousand people on the floor before DJ Larry Levan plays your record at Paradise Garage and 1,200 at the end of it. And I just love that because, I mean, I love disco. I love Larry Levan. I wish I'd gone to the Paradise Garage. It's, it's a, it's a, that's me. Last thing is Barbara Ellen interviewing Courtney Love. Courtney Love's a... I was going to say Marmite... My, but she's I like really, her. You, I like Gives her. great quote, whatever you but think. She, I think she's her. a nice person, too. Well, you see, see the thing is, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on this, and it's interesting that, let's say, particularly American music journalists who I'm friends with on Facebook, never resist an opportunity to kind of tear her head off. Oh, she didn't even write a song. Which it's is incredibly pop- sexist as it's well. It's incredibly yeah. sexist. Yeah. Yeah. And Barbara Ellen's the right person to interview without sort of that... that Courtney says, we need to access the internal AM radio that's inside everybody. We need a voice. or will always just be this college band for 25 to 35-year-old women. So I mean, that's about sort of breaking out of things. She says, after the MTV Awards, I felt like eating seven pieces of fried chicken and making out with someone in a goth band. I mean, she just comes up with this stuff. Uh, um, Why not? <laughs> and the last thing is, I just started taking better care of myself. I mean, excuse me, heroin? Not exactly a complexion-enhancing drug. <laughs> it, it's, it's, a great, it's a great interview. And, and like, like you, I have a lot of time for Courtney Love. I actually think Hole were better than most of the grunge bands that everyone, at their best, I thought Hole were a yeah. really... Yeah, the first Hole album was well, there we go. The first Hole album... Yeah. He wasn't, Kurt, Kurt wasn't on the scene. Mm. So when all these American journalists say he wrote her best songs, it's just not true. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. However, Celebrity Skin, which is the album they're about to release or are working on, trying to find the internal AM radio for, <laughs> was absolutely awful. Was it? Yeah. I mean, they have you know, made I'm not some sure dreadful heard records. And, her, and an album she made called America's Sweetheart also was, was, was terrible. I thought so, she was terrific in People versus Larry Flynn. As an actress, I thought she was really yeah, she good was, in that. She, she was, was nominated for an Oscar. For she, was. she was. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, we generally broadly like Courtney. Yeah, I do. 
enormously. Barton yeah. Barnes looking so. No, no, I, I, no. I totally agree. And I think there's there's always that kind of sexist kind of suspicion of an attack. Yeah. Uh, attacking of of really strong, intelligent, smart. Yeah. Yep. funny women yep. like, they're a real threat to mm. a lot of but men but also I think she's an easy target in the, in the same way that Angie Bowie has become an easy, an easy target mm. and I think she gets bad uh, bad rep yeah. um, it all started with Yoko didn't yeah. it? Yoko broke up exactly. it took Yoko becoming a widow for Yoko to stop being reassessed by people mm. for all intents and purposes yeah. you know mm. Uh, which obviously didn't happen with Courtney's case. But, okay, well, that's pretty much it. We're going to go out with this wonderful clip where Jimmy Webb talks about his luck. But, and sorry about the fan, everyone, humming away in the which background. Which you bogarted. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bogart that fan. <laughs> All together now. I am alive. <laughs> um, well, what fun. Thank Great you very much. That was really it. good fun. Great fun. Yeah, um, please do check out Dylan's new book, which is out next week. Let me repeat the title again. The Wichita Line Man, Searching in the Sun for the World's Greatest Unfinished Song by our special guest, Dylan Jones. It's a wonderful read about You're not right just now. this song, but everything we've sort of tried to talk about today. And, and, Thank um, you very much. Hope you've enjoyed it. We will be back next week. Yep. See you then. Catch you then. See Thanks you again, Dylan. Thank you. I am a lineman for the county And I drive the mayors I've been everywhere. <laughs> yeah. and, and that I wouldn't trade because just the experience of having known Richard Harris, of having worked in the studio, of having cut a hit record with that yeah. Wonderful, crazy, maniacal <laughs> bastard that I loved so much. Yeah. Uh, that was worth being born for. Yeah. Yeah. And when you when you add on that all the other beautiful stuff that God has given me and the opportunities that I've had to 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 sit with Frank Sinatra and sure. and talk with him time after time after time and yeah. in fact to the point where I used to sit down in my journal and write down everything Frank said and I still have these things Indeed. at home Indeed. and to work and with you like him I, I liked him yes. very yes. very much yes. I mean it, it it and 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 then to have had a to have had a very special relationship with Glenn Campbell and numerous hit records with him. So to have been able to walk through all these rooms, if life was a great house, a huge white house with crystal chandeliers in every room, and you came and you're a stranger, and you came walking by on the road, and you met someone at the gate, and they said, "Well," and you said, "Could I see the house?" and they said, and they say, "Well, you can only see one room, so pick the room you want to see." And you got to see one room in this great house. You'd be lucky. But I was the man who walked by and said, "Can I see the house?" And he and he said, "Sure." I'm, Would you like to see the whole thing? Would you like to look in every single room? And the and the man and I and I said, "Yes, I would. Thank you kindly." And I was allowed to do that. And the wind. Wichita lineman 
That was Jimmy Webb in conversation with Barney Hoskins in 2005, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Dylan Jones, whose new book, The Witched Alignment, is published by Faber and out on the 1st of August. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.